Welcome to episode 66 of Mosin at Large. On the show today, new Apple operating systems came earlier than expected. What do you make of them so far? People tell us more about their memories and preferences for audiobooks versus textbooks. Pins for blind people traveling, iPhone cases and more. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. On the full Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM, we spoke with Karthik Kanan from Envision. It was great to hear what they were up to, and I'm sure you will enjoy that. So we will have that in a separate episode of Mosin at Large. That'll be later in the week. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. We're going to do a feature, obviously, on iOS 14 and watchOS 7 on this show, and I thought I would start off by highlighting one of the features that many of us have been waiting for for some time, and that is stereo recording using the built-in mics. And I congratulate Ferrite, and I believe the alternative app that they do, HocuSci Audio Editor, may also have this too, for being the first in my App Store updates to offer stereo recording. So I'm sort of looking around here, turning my head, and as you can hear, we've got stereo using the built-in mics, and that is a welcome feature. I guess it's a little thing for some, but it will help some people to make better use of their iPhone as a serious recording tool. So well done to Apple for getting it done, and to Ferrite for being so quickly out of the gate. And as I head back into the uh, regular microphone... I'll explain why that was quite an achievement. Many people were caught on the hop by the release of iOS 14 and watchOS 7 a few days ago. What typically happens is that Apple does its big event and then developers get a golden master, which also goes to public beta testers usually. And there are a few days for developers to play with that, get used to it. And Apple puts the word out and it says it's now okay for you to submit 
apps that have functionality pertinent to the new operating system. So by the time most of us get hold of the operating system, there are lots of apps in the store. Well, for whatever reason, Apple did it differently. And when Tim Cook actually said, just at the end of the presentation, oh, and by the way, iOS 14 and watchOS 7 and tvOS 14, etc., etc., are coming tomorrow, I actually said to Heidi, did I hear that correctly? Thought my hearing aids were on the blink. And I think the most charitable description you could give this is that it was a brave decision for Apple to make. (laughs) How about that? A brave decision, because the developer community has already been a little bit annoyed at Apple over various things. And if you've been following the tech press, you'll be familiar with that. So to potentially annoy them further by giving less than 24 hours notice that the new operating system update is dropping was the only surprise of the event for me. But anyway, it's here. You've had it for a few days. What do you think? I was always interested to find out what the widgets would be like and what impact they would have on my daily usage. And I'm finding it to be a very positive impact. It's changing the way I organize my app screens and the way I work with apps. For example, I have the Waterminder app, and this is a 100% accessible way to measure your water intake. And I've had the app on page one of my home screen. I've also set up Siri shortcuts so I can just say to Siri, log 350 milliliters of water and it will. And I also have it on my Apple Watch. So it's really easy to log my water intake and make sure that I'm getting the appropriate level for my body weight, etc. But with iOS 14 and watchOS 7, there are some enhancements, including various complications that you can add to watch faces in watchOS. In iOS, they've added a lot of widgets. There are actually 10 different widgets. I mean, some of them are small, large, and medium of the same widget. But it's all really good information, highly convenient. So I've deleted the Waterminder icon from my home screen. And using that option that I talked about in my iOS demo, I said, let's put the Waterminder app in the library, but delete the icon from the home screen. But in its place, I've put one of the widgets. And that widget tells me how much water I've consumed in percentage. So I am finding my behavior, my use of apps changing as a result of that. So what do you think? How is iOS 14 changing the way you work or play? What do you like? Have you found any bugs that are really annoying for you? There aren't too many major ones this time for me. One of the big ones that is a bit annoying is that when you flick right, when you're entering text and browse screen input and you want to enter a space character... VoiceOver now says the word space, and it didn't used to do that. So I'm hoping that that will be addressed. Funnily enough, it doesn't seem to do it in the mail app for me, just everywhere else. On the positive side, it is great to see the notifications bug resolved. That was the big one for me, where if you scrolled, if you flipped right through your notifications when you got a lot of them coming in, you eventually got to the point where the only way you could really easily proceed was to delete some of the older notifications. So this is much better. I don't choose to group many of my notifications together. I don't like that. It's another tap, and I just like seeing everything coming in in chronological order. So I tend to ungroup a lot of the notifications from my apps. So what are you liking about iOS 14 and watchOS 7? And, of course, for that matter, tvOS, if you found anything good and exciting in there. Randy Shelton was in touch on email a few days ago and says, Hi, Jonathan, I just finished listening to your discussion of today's Apple event. 
I always look forward to your review and critique of what was covered. The camaraderie between all of you is fun too. I bought the Series 3 watch as a birthday gift for myself three years ago and love the workout app as well as some of the different watch faces. No need for me to upgrade, but if I were in the market for a new one, I'd get the SE model. As for the iPad, I never thought I'd get one. That changed in April due to the quarantine. I found myself watching more Netflix during that first month than I had in the last three or four years I had the service. I decided to get an iPad 11-inch Pro and use it for media only. That way I could turn off all notifications and watch Netflix, Apple TV+, read my Audible books and anything else I wanted, while my iPhone would still be available for calls or texts and other notifications. The bigger screen takes some getting used to, but I use both my phone and iPad with Braille 99% of the time. I doubt I'd use either as much as I do if I couldn't use a Braille display. I'm looking forward to iOS 14, but will wait until I get my new iPhone SE before updating. Thanks for another great discussion. Thank you, Randy. This is interesting about getting a whole device to avoid notifications, and yet it sounds like you still have your phone sitting there waiting for calls. I mean, I know people do this. I just don't really understand why. Because if you've got your phone off, do not disturb in case someone calls you, then if you are watching Netflix on your phone and you get a call, well, it's going to stop the Netflix for you, isn't it? So isn't that more convenient? But the use cases that we all have, the way we use these things differently really interest me. So thank you for sharing that, Randy. Really appreciate that. And Louise has been in touch to say thanks for the podcasts on the Apple event and iOS 14 and watchOS 7. It's a pleasure, Louise. Glad you found them helpful. Hello, Jonathan and everybody on the Mosin at Large podcast. This is Herbie in Houston, and I want to talk about my experience with the latest AirPods Pro firmware update regarding the surround sound and accelerometer and all that. It is a rather, well, interesting is the word that comes to mind feature. Now, Granted, it is new, and I'm sure vast changes are going to be coming along within you know the next few weeks, months, or whatever. But uh, right now, I've only gotten it to work on two apps. And that is the TV app and Disney+. And, you know, I'm not sure what I think on the feature, because... Okay, yes, it definitely does do some sound enhancement, which is pretty cool. Though you do have to get used to things sounding more hollow, but, you know, I guess that's the nature of some surround sound. On the other hand, you have to get used to the fact that everything moves whenever you move your head, and it is very disorienting at times. So if you move your head to the left, you get everything moving to your right and vice versa. So it tries to, you know, kind of, I guess, follow your head movements around, but not your phone movements. So I can move my phone from in front of me to putting it in my pocket and that will not affect the way things sound. But if I turn my head ever so slightly, then the thing moves. And 
if you are meticulous about wanting to make sure things are centered, then this is going to prove to be a very interesting feature. Now, it does not affect anything else, so what is nice is, you know, you can be turning your head and the sound will be moving, but your voiceover and other phone sounds are still going to be remaining in the same place. So that is cool. But if you're listening to something in DVS, you know, the audio description is going to be moving along with the rest of whatever you are watching. So that has been my experience. I've tried it on other video and audio apps, such as YouTube, the camera app, an app called Dolby On, and uh, various other TV apps, and of course, uh, Apple Music and uh, Tidal, but uh, those all currently do not utilize this feature. And like I said, I'm sure things will change as we go along. Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts there, Herbie. And I guess it will take a while for some apps to come up to speed. And does this only work, I wonder, with surround sound content? So a lot of the stuff on YouTube, for example, wouldn't be in 5.1. Also, when people say, it's interesting, like you did, it's interesting. Usually what it means is that somebody's pretty underwhelmed, but they're not ready to be hypercritical about it at this point. Now, the crackle on that recording, which I was able to clean up quite a bit with isotope, so it was a lot more crackly before I started cleaning it up. If that recording was made using the AirPods, then I hope that doesn't point to a problem with the new AirPods firmware, because that crackle was quite pronounced. Dear Jonathan, says Marissa, I noticed you were using the Alex voice. I noticed you were using Alex voice. It breathes. You can hear it. Uh, anyway, in your podcast, I absolutely love that one, but it's a bit too soft to hear in noisy environments. I wanted to take a poll. What is your favorite voice and that of your listeners? You didn't tell me what yours is, Marissa. I'm waiting to, for you to kick us off, but did you tell us? No, you did not. But I think on balance... I like Daniel. I like the way he sounds. It's got to be the compact Daniel, though. I find the full, you know, premium Daniel. Daniel premium sounds really oversampled or something weird is going on with that uh, voice. I like the fact that I can crank Daniel up to a pretty fast speed when I'm not doing demos on this podcast. And he's still pretty intelligible to me. Alex, I don't get on well with at high speed. And I find that Alex mispronounces an awful lot so i will use alex sometimes for demos and slowed right down i think alex was at 50 percent in that demo he actually doesn't sound too bad does he samantha just sounds angry to me she does she, she really does sound angry and karen sounds a bit sad oh <laughs> so in the end it's daniel for me it'd be interesting to hear what other people like in terms of voices available on iOS. But since you started this, Marissa, you have to tell me what your favourite is. I've heard from several people who have expressed sadness that some of the new features are not available for them, in particular the recognition feature. Quite a few people with iPhone 8s and 8 Pluses are saying that they don't have access to the recognition feature. That strikes me as interesting because the 8 and the 8 Plus have, as far as I'm aware, the same chip as the iPhone X. So I wonder why that is the case. Gary O'Donoghue also says, just wanted to report that my iPhone 8 Plus does not support the voice recognition technology. 
a very good incentive to buy a new iPhone in a few weeks' time. I can report that the iPhone SE, which I have for work, does support the feature, so that's good. Yeah, I must admit, I have had to just surrender to the force. I used to love it when I could just efficiently say to voice recognition, swipe left, swipe left, and off it would go. Now you have to say, voice over select previous item. Do you know how kind of nerdy and annoying that is when you say, getting dressed in the morning and just reading your tweets, and you're sitting there skimming them, and for every tweet that you want to get to, you have to say, voice over select previous item. It's quite a mouthful. But voice recognition is pretty tolerant. I'm quite amazed at how I can say it pretty quickly, you know, and it will select the previous item, but I wish we could just have the swipe left back again, or even voice over previous item, or voice over previous, or something a bit less verbose. Oi. Now, we are getting feedback coming in from Gary G over in South Africa. He's forwarding some email indicating that the Embraille app is having some trouble in iOS 14. It sounds like another developer caught on the hop, and that's not the developer's fault. So at the moment, I understand that if you do use Embraille and you upgrade to iOS 14, the keyboard will not work, the built-in keyboard that allows you to use Embraille from anywhere. So if that's important to you, you might just want to hold off for a wee while until you get word that that is resolved. Also, Petra is in touch and she says, I have been having trouble with the Tile app lately. They seem to be very committed to being sure it is accessible with the iPhone and voiceover. Still, I have a problem because when I tell Siri to find my whatever, she comes back and says, you can find all your devices through the Find My app. I don't know if you can say something different than find my when you ask where your keys are. I really do hope that Apple will come out with their tags soon. Thank you, Petra. I just had a look at this. I hope I'm not stating the obvious, but you do have to set up these Siri shortcuts first in the Tile app. So you set up a Siri shortcut per tile. So it is a pretty manual process. Straightforward enough. It's just if you've got a lot of tiles, you're going to have to set it up. And now that I've done that, I can say find my wallet, for example, and Siri does. It comes up with a thing on the screen. It doesn't speak back to me, but it does tell me where it is. So if you have gone ahead and taken the trouble to set those shortcuts up, I don't know what's up with it. But yes, I think it's highly possible that the Apple tags will be coming up at the October Apple event. I hope so, too. Hi, Jonathan. This is Tony in Clinton, Utah. And I noticed that uh, with uh, Watch OS 7, with the Goldmaster I downloaded on uh, Tuesday, that uh, when I went into the voiceover settings, the Braille settings were not there. However, I was able to actually read Braille on my Braille display until I decided to unpair it in Bluetooth settings. So, yeah, I think that's weird. Uh, And I noticed on your demo that you did with WatchOS 7, you did uh, have access to Braille settings. So, yeah, now I wish I would have never unpaired my Braille display with my watch because, oh, well, it just... Uh, won't work anymore because of uh, no braille settings available. Yeah. 
That's been the case on the watch and in the watch app on the iPhone. So, yeah, hopefully there'll be a fix out for it. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, another uh, public beta for Watch OS 7 comes out soon and that uh, puts the Braille settings back. And this is a... Braille was a feature I was very excited about with uh, WatchOS 7, and uh, it was fun playing around with Braille on WatchOS 7 until it went away. Yeah, see, Apple giveth, Apple taketh away. I can confirm this, Tony, after my demo, which I recorded the other day, and actually I must admit I hadn't gotten round to playing with Braille on the watch yet. So that was the first time that I had done a pairing of a Braille display with the watch for that recording. And after it all turned to custard, after it all turned to soup, as you can hear on that demo, and it unpaired itself, I basically out-brailed it. I brailed too fast for it. Since then... The Braille settings have vanished. The most logical explanation for this is that, like most developers and many observers who've followed Apple for a long time, I was surprised, caught unawares, by Apple's decision to go public with the iOS and watchOS releases and tvOS releases a day after sending the GM to developers, the Golden Master, and a day after the Apple event. I was working to a careful schedule which would see me doing a little bit of work on my iOS and watchOS demonstration every day. Obviously, this is not my full-time job. So at the end of the day, I was taking a few minutes, and I have been over the last little while, to put that piece together. And I was on track for it to be ready for the coming week when I was fully expecting iOS and watchOS to be out. And there are many reviewers who have been put in the same position. I know, for example, the big iOS review from MacStories.net is not out yet, and normally they put that out on iOS release day, and they've just been sent scrambling because of this uh, decision that Apple took that is so unusual. I guess it is an unusual year, isn't it? So I think what happened is that I probably did the Braille demonstration with the last build of WatchOS 7 before the Golden Master, and that Braille has gone in the Golden Master in the final build. And I congratulate Apple for doing that. They pulled Braille, at least at this point, who knows if it will come back sometime in the watchOS 7 cycle, knowing that it was really dodgy. I mean, it was really dodgy. And if you hear that demo, you will know that. And uh, who knows whether that two weeks of difference, had we had a chance to report bugs, might have helped and might have salvaged the feature in the 7.0 release. This is why it is so critical that blind people have as much opportunity as everyone else to test and provide feedback, and we lost that opportunity. But anyway, I think that's what's happened. I think they have pulled it for now. Who knows whether it will come back. If somebody has installed the new watchOS beta that is already out there, Post the release of WatchOS 7, perhaps they can let us know whether Braille is back in that one. The reason why I haven't installed that yet is that I do anticipate getting my Apple Watch Series 6 in the next few days. It's due for arrival on the 23rd of September. So I don't want to upgrade my current watch to the beta 
and then have all sorts of problems restoring from my backup because the watch that arrives will have watchOS 7 and my backup will be from 7.1 and that will mean I'll have to spend time setting the watch up as new and then installing the beta and um, downloading. The, oh, my God. So we're not going to do it that way. I'm staying on watchOS 7 until my new watch arrives. We will then do the uh, restore from the backup and then upgrade to 7.1. So if you are running that already, is Braille back or not? Back to the iPhone. Hi, Jonathan, says Howard Goldstein. I wanted to thank you for the iOS 14 demo podcast. As someone who is relatively new to the iPhone, I had been feeling rather nervous about this update, but your demonstrations allayed my fears considerably. I still plan to wait a few more days before updating, but I'm feeling a lot more confident about what the new version will be like now. I also wanted to thank you for mentioning how you've set up gestures to move by headings. There have been many times when I've wanted to navigate by headings, but I've always found using the rotor for that somewhat cumbersome. I've now set up the gestures as you suggested and am loving it. In listening to the podcast, I noticed that your phone doesn't click quite as much as mine. I went into voiceover settings, found the interaction setting in sounds and haptics, and turned off the sound for item-focused. I'm curious to know whether that's the only sound you've turned off, or if you've disabled other sounds and or haptics as well. Also, what voice were you using on your phone? Thank you, Howard. I'm glad you found the demonstration helpful, and I really appreciate you taking the time to write to let me know that. And you're not the only one. A lot of people, even some who've been using the iPhone for a while, feel some trepidation about upgrading, And I guess that's partly because some people just find these things a bit scary, but also because we have been burned in the past by uh, some bugs in initial Apple releases. Regarding the voice that I was using there, that was Alex, which is Apple's own voice. It's been on the Mac for quite some time, and many people dreamed of the day that it would be available on the iPhone. And eventually, iPhones became powerful enough that Alex on the iPhone was possible. Why don't we bring Alex back He'll have a return visit due to popular demand to answer the question relating to sounds and haptics. The answer regarding haptics is pretty easy. I have all my haptics turned off. I don't like my phone vibrating away when I flick through things, so I disable that. And I also disable it on my watch. But that's a personal preference, and it's great that we have the choice. I also don't gain much from hearing a noise every time I flick from element to element. So I have that turned off as well. But let's see how I have mine set up. To get here, I've gone into voiceover settings and then chosen audio and then sounds and haptics. And now I'll flick right. Sounds on. Double tap to toggle setting. You can turn them all off in one go if you just don't want your iPhone to make any sound at all when running voiceover. Match speech volume on. Double tap to toggle setting. The volume rotor will change the volume of voiceover speech and sounds. Haptics heading. Haptics off. So I've just turned them off altogether. I really just don't like them. (laughs) Again, that's just my personal preference. Haptic intensity, 100%. Interaction heading. Item focused button. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't tell you the sound and haptic status of each thing as you flick through. You have to double tap and go in. So just to speed this process up, I can tell you that that one is disabled for me. Item activated button. Yes, I do have that one on because I do benefit from knowing that I have double tapped and activated the item. 
Navigation wrap backwards button. I have that one disabled and also. Navigation wrap forwards button. I disable that one as well. Scroll page button. For me, that one is also disabled. Boundary reached button. I have that one enabled. No item discovered button. And that one is enabled too. Those are my sound settings. It was a great day when I got that beta of iOS uh, some time ago now and found that there was that degree of configuration over precisely what you heard. Gosh, voiceover has come such a long way and I really do appreciate all that configurability. Thanks for the question, Howard. Hope that helps. Jonathan, very, very good day, evening, afternoon. Jerarchy from Mexico, Gerardo. Firstly, con- congratulate you on the podcast you did regarding the new features on iOS 14. Thanks to that, I got a, a quicker start when I updated than it otherwise would have been. I, I really like the widgets. And right now, I am using the clock the large one with the four time zones and the weather. And also I am really liking the, the sounds for the actions and for the image descriptions. So thanks again for giving us the opportunity to make the most out of, of the new iOS with all that you have to offer with tips and and uh, tricks. Well, I'm very glad you found the podcast helpful. Thank you so much. What an amazing global village we live in because we're going from Mexico to India where Adi is writing in and he says, Hi, Jonathan. It was a double bonanza. Two midweek podcasts from Mosin at Large. Both of them were very informative. I had a few queries. What will be a good updated resource slash guide book to get started and learn to use Apple Watch with voiceover? There are a few scattered resources. However, a book with all the details in one place will help. I don't know the answer to that question, actually, Adi, because there have been some Apple Watch books. I don't think any from a blindness perspective are particularly current right now. So if anybody has any resources that uh, they can point at it to, that would be good. Like we have screen protectors or tempered glass for our iPhones, he continues, do we need something similar for our Apple Watch? Also, can someone totally blind affix the tempered glass completely on his own? Well, I don't use screen protectors for my phone either, so I haven't gone searching for the watch, but this is one of those areas where Google is your friend. And uh, if they exist, I'm sure you'll find them on Google. Maybe people can recommend any products if they feel the need for such a thing. Can you affix it yourself? Probably, yes. You would have to be quite careful to make sure you don't get any of those air bubbles in. And, of course, the trick is that you've got to just stick it straight on. And so there will be some precision involved. I think that's one I might just hand over to someone, but I wouldn't say it can't be done. He continues, There was a school of thought which felt updating to a major release of iOS via iTunes on the PC was better as compared with over-the-air updates. Does this still hold good, or both are equally fine? To date, I have updated any major release of iOS using iTunes. I used to recommend iTunes when I was writing the iOS without the iBooks, and my reason for it was that it did provide some comfort to people 
that you got progress updates all the way through the process with iTunes. You could verify what was happening with speech. When your phone goes into hyperspace and reboots and installs the update, there's no progress available with speech. And I would think Apple could make that happen if they really wanted to. I know that on the Mac, there's a kind of a special mode you can go into where it just has one TTS engine, I think, or just a few very small TTS engines that don't take too much space. That would be great if they could do that. So you could at least see the progress and get a bit of an update. But I think in general now, iTunes is just so horrible that (laughs) most people would forego that little bit extra in exchange for just waiting for the update to do its thing. And um, usually it works just fine. When over-the-air updates were newer, there were some horror stories once in a while. It's become pretty straightforward technology now. And I hear of very few people, if any, who have errors with the update process over the year now. So I don't think it applies anymore. Hey, Jonathan, this is Daniel Montavo speaking from Madrid, Spain. First of all, I'm really, really enjoying the updates from Apple this year. I think they are by far the best uh, set of updates that I remember in last years. I do remember updates with very serious bugs and, and, you know, things that really prevented users to actually enjoy, not just enjoy, but but actually use their devices in in a proper manner. And this time, yes, there are bugs, there are issues. Uh, there are always going to be bugs and issues, as you always say. But I think they are they're bearable. You, you, you can bear with them. And there are even workarounds for most of them. There's kind of a lag uh, that I'm experiencing uh, while I'm flicking and using voiceover. There's a workaround for that that consists on actually downloading or, or configuring kind of a second language in your rotor and using not the default language, but, but using your, your secondary language. And, and that actually improves the lag quite, quite a lot. Second thing that I need to comment with you is I'm really enjoying as well the uh, possibility to use the stereo recording capabilities of the built-in mics in the iPhone. I've been using the Ferrite application. I've contacted you in, in, on Twitter for that because I was not really sure how that worked. I actually discovered that it was a language issue and I contacted uh, the person uh, on the other side of Farad and he said, yeah, we, we acknowledge that issue. We had that issue and we'll be fixing that in 2.6 uh, point, I think it's 2.6.1, the version that he said was going to contain the, the fix for that. So I'm really glad I need to turn my iPhone into English if I want to do recording stereo with, with the built-in mics. But uh, that's not a big issue, uh, and hopefully this is going to be fixed uh, really soon, as soon as Apple approves that. It certainly will. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for getting in touch from Madrid, and I'm glad you had a good experience with the Ferrite developer. I do find that with a lot of these third-party developers, many of whom are just individuals who are putting apps together, when you find an app developer that has the accessibility bit between their teeth and they really care, it is amazing what they do. We're going to be having such a developer on this show quite soon, actually. And this is one of the great things about the mobile ecosystem. I'm sure it applies to Android as well as iOS. He has two audio apps in the store. There's the Ferrite app, and there's also one called HocuSci, which I actually find a little easier to edit with. And I imagine that's got stereo recording in it as well, although I haven't checked. I saw an update come out at the same time that the Ferrite one did. So he's a great developer, and I highly recommend supporting his work. Jessica Dale, hello. She says, hi, Jonathan. I have an Apple Watch Series 5, just like you. 
Not for much longer, mate. Oh, and I am running watchOS 7. I cannot, for the life of me, get the rotor gesture to work. If I do, the rotor changes the minute I lift my fingers off the screen. I figured out how to do it by using my left thumb as an anchor point and then twisting my index finger. This is not super comfortable, but it works. However, I would like to know how to avoid having my rotor change when I lift my fingers. Any advice? That does sound frustrating. Thanks for getting in touch. I've just had a play with this, and I can't duplicate this myself. I have the 44mm Series 5, which gives better battery life because it's a larger one, and obviously it gives you a little bit more screen real estate. But even then, I would say that the rotor gesture, you know, you don't have a lot of real estate to play with to execute that rotor gesture. And I know having trained a lot of people and done podcasts like this over the years, a lot of people really do struggle with the rotor gesture, even on a nice big iPhone. When I did one-on-one training with people, particularly in person, I would always leave with people acing the rotor. And normally that involves going into the voiceover settings and going into the practice area and just practicing with the rotor until it becomes second nature. It does appear to be one of those gestures that is hard for some to master and there is no practice area on the watch. With the rotor, two things seem to work for people and which one works depends on the person, so I'll offer them both. One is imagine that you are twisting a volume knob on an old-fashioned radio or anything that has a little knob that you have to turn. So twist that knob with your fingers on the screen and then as soon as you've done the twisting, immediately lift both fingers. If one finger remains on the screen longer than the other finger, then it could be interpreted as another gesture. So you've got to put both fingers down, do the twist, just like Chubby Checker said all those years ago, and then lift them right away at the same time. The other way that works for some people is to put two fingers on the screen, move one up and the other down simultaneously, which will also execute the rotor gesture. So if I turn my watch on, for example, I'm just going to twist the dial. There's characters, and I lift my finger up immediately. We'll just get it away from the time there. Characters. And what happened there was because I flicked right to another complication, it went back to the actions rotor. Speaking rate, volume. So I'm just putting my fingers on the face, twisting it like a dial, and immediately lifting both up. Language. If I let one stay down, volume. I'll try and do that. Speaking rate, Grenada Village. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It, without actually seeing you do this, Jessica, it's hard to know specifically what might be happening in your case, but I hope those tips help. It might just be continually practicing with it until it comes right. And I think many of us did that when we first got an Apple product or any touchscreen-based product. We just had to keep practicing the gestures until they worked more often than they didn't work. And the thing about the rotor is it is just such an important gesture if you can't use the rotor then you really are missing out on a huge amount of functionality on these devices. Good luck.
Hey Jonathan, this is Vaughan from Sydney, sending you a message. thought you might be interested in my thoughts on the new Apple Watch 6. What a gem of a device. I went and picked it up on launch day in Sydney here on Friday. I was a bit concerned due to COVID-19 as to whether I'd be able to get one. So I ordered it online, but the deadline, it wasn't going to come until the middle of October. So because they don't charge your credit card until you go and collect, until it ships rather, I thought I'd go and hop in the line and if I can get one on launch day, I will. So I slipped out of work a bit early and rushed off to the Apple store and there wasn't that big a queue. So I managed to get in. I took the watch six with cellular and it's so responsive with voiceover. Its accessibility features are obviously first class. I'm still a bit concerned about the battery life, but I forgot to charge it enough and it ran out halfway through the day today. So I'll be interested to see what happens when it's got a full charger battery. But I took it to aqua aerobics classes this morning and it worked wonderfully in the water as a device for collecting data. And then I went for a walk today and it collected data there obviously as well. So I'm really looking forward to the health and fitness benefits that it'll bring. And I just can't get over how incredibly responsive it is with voiceover. If I was upgrading as a prospective upgrader, I would not go the Series 3. I think the responsiveness gains that you get from the 6 far outweigh it. I probably wouldn't go the Watch SE either because it's running the Series 5 chip and I just think when you're using voiceover, you need to go for the latest chip if you can possibly afford it. I'd definitely go cellular. I think the idea that you have access to your mobile phone and your messages without having to carry a phone and you can just have AirPods in your pocket is a game changer. And I love the fact that with iOS 14, your AirPods connect seamlessly to either your watch or your phone, depending on what you answer. Keep up the good work. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks very much, Vaughan. I'm looking forward to the arrival of mine. It's slipped to Wednesday now. It's the Series 6 stainless steel 44mm with cellular, and it is going to be good to have it here. I agree with you about the SE. I think the iPhone SE is a really good purchase for many blind people. It's got the Touch ID. It doesn't have the fancy schmancy camera thing, but some blind people don't worry about that, and it's perfectly fine for things like Be My Eyes and Ira. What concerns me about the watch SE is its lack of health sensors, such as no blood oxygen level and no ECG. Someone got a lot of, I mean, thousands of retweets on Twitter when they made the point that why is Apple really depriving low-income users of those features? And I just think if you can manage to get the 6, that is the way to go right now. Fully agree regarding the Series 3. I was reminded of just how sluggish it was when I was tasked, tasked I was, with upgrading Bonnie's watch to watchOS 7. And my goodness, there is a lot of progress that has been made since Series 3 in terms of responsiveness. It really is a bit painful using Series 3 with voiceover. And I guess you get used to anything. But the moment you get a Series 5 or Series 6, and it sounds like Series 6 has made progress again, you will certainly not want to go back. And I think also, if you're investing in one of these new pieces of technology, it's best to future-proof yourself as much as you can. So if you can swing for the Series 6, you've got the new chip, you've got those all-important health features, and it may just be the incentive when you've got this amazing computer on your wrist to take care of yourself a little better, and that's not a bad thing. As all the business peeps say, if you don't measure it, you can't improve it. Let's go back to India, because Anil is here, and he says, Hi Jonathan, just want to share my iPad OS 14 experience. 
I updated my iPad yesterday morning. The update process was smooth. After the update, I reset my iPad because I could. Everything works as it should. The feature which I liked most is the description of images slash graphical parts of the screen by voiceover. When you encounter an image slash graphic, voiceover plays a sound. Okay, so you've got the sounds turned on and tries to describe it. To check this out, open the speed test app and do a speed test. And you'll hear the actions when you're doing a speed test followed by the description of the graphic. He also says that it's good for podcast artwork indeed. And of course, you can hear some additional demonstrations in the previous episode of Mosin at Large when we walked through a lot of what's new in iOS 14 and watchOS 7. Kathy Blackburn in Austin says, I updated my iPhone 8 this morning and helped Audley update his iPhone SE 2020. Woo! So far, we are not experiencing the voiceover lag that some people have reported. I'm also relieved to find that my home screen looks the same as it did with iOS 13. I got the impression from WWDC that my home screen would be all different. Is it possible those changes only affect newer phones? What is the difference between a widget and a shortcut? Perhaps I had better refer to the various editions of iOS without the eye and unearth what it says about widgets. The recognition settings don't show up in my phone, but they were available on Audley's. We turned them on, but had to turn them off again when they adversely affected Ira. Thanks, Kathy. I do recommend going back and checking out episode 65 of Mosin at Large, which was published just ahead of iOS 14 and Watch OS 7's release because we cover both of these things. It is a very good idea, as I said in that podcast, not to enable screen recognition for apps where it's not necessary. Ira is fully accessible, so turn it off there. But it is great in a situation where an app is not fully accessible and, in fact, can make an app that is totally inaccessible accessible, as we showed in that episode. And also, we did show on that episode how to add widgets to your home screen. In terms of the difference between a shortcut and a widget, a shortcut is a way of automating something, either getting a string of things to happen in sequence or simply to ask Siri to tell you something and have it speak back. It's an automation function. A widget, on the other hand, is a way of taking information from an app and displaying it somewhere else. In the past, that someone else has been your today's screen. Now that somewhere else can be your home screen. And developers now have considerable choice in terms of how much information is displayed. Broadly speaking, there are three sizes of widget from which developers can choose and offer you. So check it out. Hopefully, Mosin at Large episode 65 will give you lots of helpful information there. While we're talking about changes brought about as a result of iOS 14, one of the changes that people really did look forward to was the ability to set another browser or another email client as your default. There is a little snafu with this, and presumably it is a bug. In iOS 14.0, if you restart your phone after setting, say, Chrome or Edge as your default browser or Microsoft Outlook as your default email client, then it will reset to the default of having Safari and Mail as your default, respectively. Hopefully Apple is going to fix that. I don't think that is by design. It has caused me to revert to Chrome, though, over Edge. And the reason for that is that having Chrome as my default browser on my PC and my default browser on my phone 
is a great experience because it's syncing everything. And I know that Microsoft Edge intends to get there, but the reality is that they're not there yet. And today, using Chrome, I'm able to have my history synced. And that means that if I'm reading something on my phone and then I want to pick up on the PC, I can do that. My history's in sync. So something that I read on my phone, I can go back to the PC and think, what was that? And just pick it up. It's a really cool thing. So for now, I'm back on Chrome and enjoying it, actually. In Canada, Kelly Sapergia says regarding iOS 14, I upgraded to it as soon as it was released. It, just just pausing here to say, and wasn't the release interesting? Not just because of the lack of warning for developers or reviewers or anything, but the way it was sort of staggered out on release day. Normally, Apple sort of pushes some great big mythical button at 10 a.m. Pacific, and it all just rolls out around the world. It was a very strange, new, staggered kind of release this year. Anyway, back to Kelly. He says, so far, it's working quite well for me. I know there have been comments about a lag with voiceover when moving around the screen, but I haven't noticed anything serious on my iPhone 7 Plus using Fred as my voice. Unfortunately, I'll have to get a newer iPhone to use features like the new recognition feature. The only problem I experienced so far was that a clock chiming app I use called Marine Bell suddenly stopped working immediately after upgrading. I tried switching to another one I have called Westminster Chimes, but with the same result. I could go into either app and make adjustments, but they still wouldn't chime. I eventually discovered that I had to enable show on lock screen for either app in settings notifications, though I don't remember having to do this before. I'm just glad they're working properly again, as I like having my phone chime on the hour and half hour. I'll admit I'm surprised a feature like this isn't part of the iOS clock app, it also reminds me of when I used to have Steve's Talking Clock. I miss that program. Well, boy, thank you, Kelly. People love their chiming clocks, don't they? When I was a kid, we had chiming clocks chiming all the day. <laughs> and I, I do not miss the chiming clocks, and I would certainly not want one on my phone. But people love them. And I have seen people who've been quite upset about the Westminster Chimes app not working. So thank you, Kelly, for providing that workaround. Christopher Wright says, I haven't updated to iOS 14 yet. I'm hesitant to get the initial version because I've heard voiceover is quite sluggish. I'll wait until iOS 14.1 or 14.2 to upgrade. The one feature I'm looking forward to is the auto-advance support for Braille displays. I'd also like to use the screen recognition feature, but my 6S doesn't support it. I have not experienced the sluggishness. Uh, that's not to minimise it for those who are, of course. It must be really frustrating. But there is a workaround, and that is simply to add the voice that you prefer to use as your secondary voice in the rotor. Michael Bullis says, When I try to use Netflix, I find that I can't read program descriptions. Is this just me, or is this a bug? In other words, I can see titles, but that's all. If there's some command I'm missing, please enlighten me. Thanks, Mike. I actually haven't had a play with TVOS 14 yet. I didn't participate in the beta cycle for it because we don't really use our Apple TV as much as we used to now that we have the Samsung TV. 
So if anybody can shed some light on that Netflix issue, by all means. Pam Francis is in touch. She says, with the app library now being available in iOS 14, is it necessary to have folders on your home screen? Well, I guess it never really was necessary to have them at all. Some people just have page after page after page of apps, and the app library really was created to deal with that use case. When you go into the app library, and we show this on episode 65 of Mosin at Large, what you find is that there are a group of arbitrary folders that Apple has set up. And there is no way for you to move apps into folders in your app library or create folders of your own in the app library. That might improve over time, but for now, at the beginning of the iOS 14 cycle, where Apple puts the app is where the app lives in the app library. So the short answer is, if you're a fastidious, neat freak like me, and you like to really organize your stuff in a way that makes sense to you, then the app library does not at this point completely replace the use case for creating your own folders on your home screen. Hello, Jonathan Zerzi and Lackey. I have had no major problems with the new iOS. I did notice a slight lag with my default voice, but switching the voice has fixed that. The thing that has given most fun is setting up automatic panning on my Braille display. I'm sure this would be even better with a larger number of cells. Perhaps I should get a 40-cell unit. Perhaps you should, Ian. Splurge, that's what I say. And I'd be interested to know what command you set up for your auto-advance, since Apple hasn't offered a default one. Another question from a listener regarding editing your home screen so that you can add widgets or delete apps and how is that possible i think that must be referring to what i was demonstrating in episode 65 of mosin at large what you've got to do is go into your voiceover settings and find the rotor actions button in there there is an option called allow editing apps on home screen or something like that you've got to ensure that that is on when that happens you'll find that one of the actions available to you is edit from your home screen. So I hope that helps. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hello, my name is Candy, says this email, and I am from New Orleans, Louisiana. This is my first time ever contributing to the podcast. In fact, I've only just started listening the last few weeks. I'm an entertainer in the New Orleans area, and since the COVID, I have found myself with much more leisure time. I purchased the Orbit Writer and really do like it. I do very well with Braille screen input, but I also find that the Writer is very convenient and works very well with my iPhone. Not only is it great for typing, but you are able to use many Braille commands, which allow some tasks to be carried out very quickly. When I first purchased it, I thought I'd only use it for typing, but I have found that I enjoy using many of the keyboard commands. For those people who have difficulty typing on the actual iPhone, this is a great investment. It is only $100, and in my opinion, it is totally worth it. When I first received it, I was a little disappointed in it. If you're trying to type with it on your lap, it is a little unsteady. It tends to move around. My husband was able to come up with a little device for me to set it in if I should be trying to type when not on a hard surface. Other than that, I really can't find any negative comment. 
Jonathan, please keep up the good work. You bring much knowledge to the blind community. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Candy. And you're in a favorite part of the world of mine. I went to the NFB convention in New Orleans. Hard to believe how long ago that was. 1997. I was there and got a chance to wander around and listen to the entertainers playing on the streets. What an atmosphere. It was incredible. And I remember there was this family playing. It was like a mum and a dad and a bunch of kids, and they were brilliant. They were like a really top-notch jazz band just playing on the street. And um, at the end of one of the songs that they played, the father said, this here is the tip jar, and over there is the ATM machine. (laughs) So we couldn't have been more subtle than that. Anyway, good to hear from you, Candy. Hope you'll keep listening. And I'm glad you're having so much good luck with your Orbit writer. Here are two emails about a related subject. Firstly, dear Jonathan, greetings from the Netherlands from a new listener of your podcast. I very much enjoy the show. It contains lots of interesting perspectives on the accessibility and assistive technology landscape. There's a question I would like to ask you and the listeners. I recently started using the iPad with my Braille with a lowercase b display and voiceover, and I like the experience. There are lots of apps that take notes, do word processing, etc. However, most of these only link to some Mac alternative. Drafts is a good example. Others, such as Microsoft Word, are not very accessible. I know you can save files into the Files app, where you can upload them to cloud storage services, but this requires some extra steps. Is there an app similar to Drafts that is accessible, easy to use, and knows how to talk to a Windows PC? Thanks, and I'm looking forward to the upcoming podcasts. Thank you, Jesse. And in a fitting outbreak of serendipity and uh, synergy, here's another email that says, Hello, Jonathan, how are you? I am Danny from Canada. I am one of your podcast listeners, and many thanks for your hard work. May I ask you a question? Which app do you use to take notes or documentation with your iPhone? What do you use when you are doing a presentation? I am a voiceover user. In my job, I need to do a lot of presentations and public speaking. I am trying to find an app that is accessible for me to take notes and read notes during the presentation. I am currently using Voice Dream Writer, and unfortunately I don't find it too reliable, especially when I have to deal with a long file. I'm not sure if the app is a problem or my phone. I'm using the 10R. I am grateful if you can share with me your experience. Thanks. Thank you, Danny. Well, to both of you, I'd recommend going back into the archives of the podcast And look up episode 48, because in episode 48, I talk about my workflow, which at the moment is to use Ulysses on my iPhone, which is a super word processor for iOS. And I'm saving my documents in Markdown. And I do explain what Markdown is, if you're not familiar with that and the basic syntax. I then have a plugin installed in my installations of Microsoft Word, which is called Writage. And Writage lets you take a markdown file and work with it in Word. So what that means is that I can work in Ulysses on my iPhone with great accessibility and then also continue the work in Word. I have all the documents saved in Dropbox, so there's no conversion or anything like that because they're in markdown, which both 
word processing environments can work with and I just swap between them as the need arises. It is super cool. And if I need to give it to someone, I can save it in Word, of course, either in Ulysses, which has a great export feature, or in Word itself. You don't have to use Ulysses. It's got a subscription model. And maybe some people object to that, but we subscribe to Microsoft Office too, don't we? So, you know, it's it's the way of the future. But you could also use a tool like IA Writer on your iPhone, which is also very accessible and actually has a few more formatting commands than Ulysses does. So all this explained in great depth in episode 48 of this podcast. I hope it helps you both out. This is Louis the Luddite from the United States. I have uh, two comments about uh, books that I haven't heard covered by anybody else. First is a great source of books that you can't get anywhere else is the accessible books at Open Library from the Internet Archive. So if you search for that, they have all kinds of books that have never been made into uh, electronic format. They're all scanned, uh, but they're in protected DAISY. So in the United States, you need to use a device with an NLS key to read them. Also, it's really a, a good source of books, all free. And I want to talk about text-to-speech, which I use a lot, but uh, I have problems with the devices frequently saying the wrong thing. For example, I was reading a book about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and every time it mentioned them going to L.A., it would say Louisiana, because L.A. is the postal abbreviation for Louisiana, and other mispronunciations like that. Um, on multiple devices, you know, Victor Reader's Dream on on uh, the iOS, uh, things like that. All right, take good care. Thanks for the great podcast. Yeah, that's a really good topic that you bring up, actually, because this is more common than people realize, where TTS developers or screen reader developers are embellishing the text. They're expanding on it, and sometimes not correctly. So the L.A. meaning either Los Angeles or Louisiana is a classic case in point. I mean, that completely changes the context. Imagine if someone called you and said, meet me in L.A., And the screen reader or TTS engine you're using chose to expand it either to mean Los Angeles or Louisiana and gave you the wrong one. It'd be a bit of a problem, wouldn't it? Especially if you'd booked your fare for the wrong one. So really, I I do wish that these products would just speak what's on the screen. One of the classic ones from the early days I remember is I had a Keynote device. It might have been using the Keynote Gold Speech or perhaps it was even earlier but I do remember it repeatedly talking about phone number Aviv. You know, there was trouble today in phone number Aviv. Uh, What is this? But it's actually Tel Aviv, and they decided that T-E-L was short for phone number, which sometimes people do put in address cards and things, you know, Tel, and then the, the number's written down. So phone number Aviv, that is a classic one. Brian Gaff in the UK says, with regard to narration, well, as a talking newspaper producer here in the UK, we only use volunteers, and we have some very fluent readers, but limited time if the content is to be current, so occasionally some readers do have off days. I am probably more critical than our listeners, though. They like a human, any human, over automated speech, though I have used it when time is important. If I checked out all my readers who I find tedious and stumble occasionally, I'd have no producers or content finders either. So one sometimes has to swallow one's words a little here and there. We are a free service, but if I were paying, 
I'd expect a lot more competency. The talking newspaper thing in the UK still is a really big thing, and it seems to be a culture that is uniquely British, as far as I'm aware. There's just quite a few of them, or at least there were. And I guess many have either folded in the digital age or have had to adapt to some degree for the digital age. Gary G in South Africa says, and the racer that I love is a lady called Tavia Gilbert. She acts out the characters very well and gives them their own personality. I also enjoy it when an author reads his or her own book. It gives you, the reader, an idea of how the author envisions what he wants to put out there. As far as Harry Potter is concerned, I first heard it read by Jim Dale, who I enjoyed very much. I do have the Stephen Fry books as well, but must just read them. Well, after you have, Gary, I will be interested in your comparison. I glanced over it and found that Stephen read a little bit slowly. But from what I heard, he is also very good. I also don't mind reading TTS books, especially if I am limited with space on my iPhone. The voice I would use depends on the book I am reading. These days, I use Daniel for my TTS books. I find when I use eloquence, I don't always take in as much as I could. And I don't like eloquence talking slowly. On another topic, what is the name of the program where you can view the contents of an iPhone using Windows Explorer? I think you spoke of it two weeks ago. Thanks for a great show as always. Thank you, Gary. That is called iMazing. And I also got an email from someone saying, can you demonstrate iMazing? I actually haven't really gotten to know iMazing typically well. I haven't used it much, but perhaps over the summer I'll become more familiar with it and put a demo together if I think it's worthwhile demoing. Daniel Semro says, Hi again, Jonathan. I use Bard for my joy of reading and my favourite Harry Potter reading is Eric Sandvold. Don't know that name at all. He's so funny when he does the character voices. Thanks, Daniel. Hi, Jonathan, and listeners of Mushroom FM, says Lachlan Thomas. I'd like to tell you my audiobook memories. I apologize if this email is long, but this is something I am very passionate about, and I love to talk about audiobooks. So let's begin. My first memories of audiobooks begin in 1990, when I was six years old. I believe I received for my birthday two read-along audiobooks. One was Snoopy Come Home. The other was the Thomas the Tank Engine book. The Snoopy book was dramatized. The characters were voiced by the cast of the Peanuts gang, I think, and there was music and sound effects. It goes without saying that the Thomas book was narrated by Ringo Starr himself. By the way, have you heard his latest album? I certainly have, Lachlan. I have, and I like it. It's called What's My Name? Just taking a break from Lachlan's email, yes, and there is a recording on that album of the John Lennon song, Grow Old With Me, and Paul is playing bass. They're doing a bit of performing together on and off now, which is really good to see. Getting back on topic, says Lachlan, the first audio books I listened to were commercially recorded and produced. They weren't recorded by Services for the Blind. I attended what was then the RVIB school in Melbourne, and during my first year, I occasionally borrowed audiobooks from the school, but this is something I did very rarely. We would sometimes listen to audiobooks in class, but I do not have vivid memories of these. In early 1991, 
Mum bought me a tape of short stories narrated by the well-known Australian personality Max Gillies. I have several cassettes of his story narrations, and they're pretty good. He voices all the characters in the stories he tells, I believe, and they're very well produced with music and sounds. In 1994, when I was in grade three, I remember our class would listen to an audio book and read along with it. I remember we were studying Peter Rabbit at the time. In 1995, my mother signed me up to the RVIB Talking Book Library, and they sent me a four-track talking book player. At the time, the library were using the Telex Talking Book cassette machines. I believe they were known in the USA as the NLS C1 Talking Book players. Sadly, I didn't have access to the four-track recorders produced by the American Printing House for the Blind, as these machines were probably too expensive for the library to give to their clients. The Telex machines were not the most reliable products I've used. Between 1995 and 2007, when I received a digital talking book player, I had to replace my machine several times due to various faults. I still am a member of the Vision Australia Library today, and as others have said, many of their books are commercial productions, with some books still being recorded in house or sourced from other libraries for the blind, namely RNIB in England. When I was growing up, my dearest cousin Kate used to make up stories and tell them to me. Her stories were generally about video games, such as the Super Mario games, which I loved playing when I was a child. And I still love them. In 1992, Kate got a Super Nintendo, and I used to watch her playing Super Mario World and The Legend of Zelda. This is relevant to my topic, as Kate would tell me stories about these games. Beginning in 1995, I would record Kate telling me these stories on my tape recorder. I have many recordings of Kate making up these stories. Including one story where she is actually playing Super Mario World to use its music and sound effects to add to the story.、Hmm, I wonder if she's embarrassed that you still have these.、Uh, he continues. I still have most of these cassettes, and in the year 2000, I digitized them and copied them to CDs. And I would play these CDs at night when going to sleep. I'd leave the CD player on all night with it set to repeat. So the CD would play non-stop. Now I have the stories on my talking book player, so I can play them when I want and where I want. And boy, do I still listen to these stories! Kate's stories have done so very much for me over the years. They relax me when I'm stressed, they cheer me up when I'm upset, and they generally help me to enjoy my life. And they soothe me when I'm unsettled. I like both dramatized audio books and straight text narrations. I grew up with dramatized audio books and have memories of going on long car rides with my family, listening to the adventures of Tintin and other audio books. The BBC, in particular, have produced the most amazing dramatizations I've ever heard. I have a number of their audio books on tape, including The Hobbit and The Jungle Book. I do not read Braille, though I've considered learning it. I can read print if I enlarge it, but I'm a bit slow at reading it. So when I read passages of text for my TAFE course, I use TextHelp Read and Write for this task. I generally use a dedicated talking book player to listen to my books. I've had a few Victor Reader Stream units, a PlexTalk PTN1 Pro, 
a Telex Scholar CD player and various others. I know I can listen to these books on the iPhone too. My talking book player of choice right now is the Baykel Talking MP3 player, which I bought from the Braille bookstore several years ago. Others who've contributed to your recent programs have spoken of voluntary narrators reading books and some have spoken of poorly recorded books. I've had my fair share of these. One thing I hate are recorded daisy audio books that are narrated by a text-to-speech voice. This is particularly bothersome because I generally find a recorded narrator to be easier to understand than a TTS voice. Some narrators I've heard are very good, others less so. There are a few narrators who I particularly like, such as Tony Porter, who I think works for Vision Australia. Some years ago, I read a Janet Ivanovich book called Seven Up. It was recorded by the RNZFB, I think, and narrated by a New Zealand woman who did a fantastic job of mimicking an American accent. I was very pleased with this. Audiobooks have come a long way since I was a child. To think that I can now borrow electronic books from my local public library or buy them online and instantly download them and play them, be it on my iPhone or a dedicated talking book player. Audiobooks are my world. They're so convenient for me. I can be reading a book and doing other things, such as eating, performing household chores, or just sitting and relaxing on the couch. I can even listen to them when I'm on my swing, and this is why I love them so much. I absolutely do believe that Braille has its place, as does print, and nothing can replace these forms of media. But for me, audiobooks are my primary source of reading material. Hey, Jonathan and all other Mosin at Large listeners, this is Bryant here. I try to balance between Braille and audio as much as I can. With my hearing loss, I tend to rely on Braille a little bit more than, than I do audio, but I do like reading audiobooks. When the narrators are reasonable, I've had some narrators just read like this the whole time in a complete monotone voice, and it's it gets really boring. I first got into audiobooks when I was pretty little. Well, I had two tape recorders. One of them was a APH recorder. Um, I remember that very well. As a matter of fact, it broke, uh, I think, about two years ago. And I think I got it when I was about maybe four or five. So it lasted a good 17, 18 years, which is really good. And then I had, I think they're called the uh, cassette book machines. They were from the National Library Service. They were their book players that you used to be able to play cassettes on. They weren't actually tape recorders, but they were the predecessor to what is now the NLS talking book player, which I have. That thing has an amazing speaker, by the way. I tend to get audiobooks from Audible, although now that I heard about uh, Libro FM on the podcast, I'm very tempted to try it out. I just find that the narrators are better on Audible. There's a couple of narrators on Bard that I do like, uh, Eric Sandvold being one of them. He read the American version of Harry Potter. I didn't like that one because I feel like Harry Potter needs to be read by a British person for me to enjoy it. But Eric Sandvold's really good for a lot of other books. He does a good job. 
Bruce Taves says, "Hi, Jonathan. You were talking about how, when you grew up, you weren't allowed to use audio books until you had mastered Braille with a lowercase b. I can certainly see the advantages of that. For me, living in a very rural environment, books were so hard to come by. I'd take what I could get. I was the kid who read the forward to the dictionary, all the acknowledgments and credits in a textbook, everything." I took volumes of the dictionary home with me, so I'd have something to read in the evening. I'd read everything in every format that I could get my hands on. If my dad was at a convention that offered Braille agendas, he'd pick it up for me, so I'd be able to read it. I've had some fascinating audio narration stories in the past. I remember as a young child getting a book for children read by a volunteer who could easily get tripped up by the word "the." She stumbled over absolutely everything. Clearly, she was a kindly old lady who was trying to do a little bit of good. But some people simply should not be reading audio books, especially for kids. You can't put a lot of expression into your reading when you get tangled up in big words like "cat." In high school, I was reading a book on basic programming. The narrator clearly did know his stuff. At the end of each chapter, he'd stop and give a summary of what he thought were the important points of the chapter. One time, he was describing a flowchart, and he ended with, "Which is silly because this was put out by the Alberta government and violated just about every rule of textbook creation." When I was in Bible college, I was reading a book recorded by what was then called Recordings for the Blind. This guy clearly was not a Bible scholar. For the longest time, when I was reading, I was trying to figure out what he meant by Mount Chapter Three, Mount Chapter Sixteen, and so on. I finally figured out that he was interpreting MT as Mount instead of Matthew. Then he got into quotations from the book. Of Reverend Revelations, and he topped it off with readings from the book of Philistines, Philippians. I remember when I started my job with CNIB in the library, and I met some of the volunteers who recorded audio books. I was talking to one about his experiences, and he said something like, "Then there was this guy in the late eighties who was in Bible college and made us read all these boring theology books." I had to smile. Shortly before I left CNIB, I was pressed into service both as a narrator and a monitor of talking book creation. I wish every blind person could go through this. It gives one a whole new appreciation for the time, effort, and money that go into the creation of talking books. Finally, one last anecdote from CNIB, which shows the incredible dedication some volunteers have. We had one reader who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He said his goal was to finish narrating the book he was working on before he died. I'm told that each week he came in, he looked worse and worse, but he did reach his goal, and I will always be grateful for that kind of dedication. Thanks very much, Bruce. Yes, I have both narrated and produced some stuff in the recording studios in Auckland. I used to do a thing called. I think it was called Sound and Touch Quarterly or something that I would narrate, and also for a short time, actually while I was still in high school, I was acting producer of the magazine recording service. And you're right, it is quite an experience. 
Your mentioning of narrators sort of editorializing reminded me of a really crazy transcriber's note that I read in a maths book when I was in fourth form. So I must have been about 14 or 15. <laughs> and the transcriber's note said this, the following diagram is on facing pages. See the next two facing pages, which are facing. Luis Pena is in touch again. He says, I love Winamp to play videos. However, I haven't been able to increase the playback speed of videos. I wonder if this can be done in Winamp. There used to be a plugin around called Pacemaker, I believe. I never used it, so I can't be sure whether it works on videos or not. But if you haven't tried the Pacemaker plugin for Winamp, try installing it, giving it a go, and see if that works. More comments coming in on voting this week, which is great, beginning with Tiffany Jessen, who says, The beginning of my story is similar to Rebecca's experience. I walked to my local voting region independently in elementary school, about a mile from my home, and checked in with not a lot of fuss. I don't recall if I had to sign in, but they definitely had to look me up, which caused a bit of fuss as I had moved to my city and only registered recently. Eventually, I was found, and then the mayhem started. There was a lot of discussion of how this was going to work, of course without my consultation, until I gently interrupted to point out the machine was, or at least was supposed to be, accessible. Stymied in response, I then explained how it worked in all my prior experiences. They discussed further, then consulted another worker, presumably a supervisor of a kind, on the phone in another region. She didn't answer, so the dog and I were patiently set aside while they referred to the manual. Thankfully, the woman did call them back eventually, but initially she just informed the workers that I could bring one or even two workers in the booth with me. I said yes, I knew this was permitted, but is not required. The machine being accessible is required. Eventually they started to give up, so consulted with the woman on the phone again. Finally, about 20 minutes into the process, the woman from the phone drove over, and together they figured it out. I got in the booth, and before voting, the speech walks you through a kind of orientation tutorial of where the buttons are and how to use this kind of remote control on a wire. This remote thing is not standardly used, but the wire is long. I presume this is easier for people voting from a sitting position. Anyway, unfortunately, the jabbering worker insisted on standing outside the curtain in case I needed help, which you would think is fine to ignore, but since she wouldn't step aside a single minute, she insisted on bellowing all the way across the gym to the other workers at the top of her lungs. I couldn't figure out how to start the tutorial over, and I couldn't hear over the woman. It was very frustrating. Hoping the thing had volume control, I traced the headphone wire because, at least in the case of ATMs, the volume is often in the same region as the plug. Tracing the wire, I was surprised to find it was coming from atop and ultimately behind the machine. Not being permitted to open the curtain until done, I was stuck, wanting but not able to vote, and trying to be patient about waiting for the bellowing woman.
Eventually, the woman got distracted, and I could vote in peace. I opened the curtain, exited the booth, retrieved my I Voted sticker, and began to zip my coat to prepare for the rainy walk home. As I was about to leave, the woman from the phone addressed me to see if I needed help finding the car. Isn't it amazing how many people ask blind people this question? It never ceases to amaze me. Anyway, Tiffany continues. Internally, I found this a humorous question, as even if I happened to have someone drive me there, they likely would have come in with me. But in either case, I turned down the offer, but inquired what was the easiest slash safest way of getting through slash around this parking lot to the street as I was walking. She then said she had to drive to another voting region, so offered me a ride. Usually suspicious about taking rides from strangers, her being some type of authority, I decided to accept the ride. While in the car, we had a little discussion, and she apologised about the wait and thanked me for being so patient and non-confrontational. My response was that I didn't mind waiting and that I honestly expected to do so. I knew it would be easier for the workers to simply come in the booth with me, but my goal was not only to vote or even do it easily, but to do it in the same manner in which everyone else in the country has the right to do so. She said she agreed and would be sure that all the staff have the full, adequate training. I have never had a problem voting again, whether federally or locally in the state primaries. Greetings, Jonathan and Mosin at Large listeners. This is Stan Luttrell in Medford, Oregon. Last week you were discussing voting and asking people to talk about their experiences with voting. Oregon is a vote-by-mail state, which means everybody votes by mail. I've been here for 20 years now, and one of the first things I was able to do once uh, they, they just came out with a option for people that use adaptive technology like screen readers to be able to vote. And I can tell you, that it just works. I originally started out using window eyes and now I use JAWS and was able to vote flawlessly and it was it worked like a charm. Uh, you were able to uh, register, you were able to know which person you were voting for and, uh, and you could mark the name and you could vote on the different articles on the ballot, the different measures that you could do. And it has been a really nice experience because moving to Oregon, this is the first time that I've been able to vote unassisted. I would always have to have someone assist me. And when I lived in California, I would have a family member come in and we would mark the ballot and everything would go, but there was nothing like the feeling of being able to vote unassisted. What happens is you vote, you mark the ballot, and then you print it because you you vote using your screen reader's uh, commands, and then after you mark the ballot, then you print it out, but you have to, of course, sign the, the ballot. So you, 
you have to have someone assist you to find out where you need to put your signature. And then you also have to have uh, someone help you put it in the secrecy envelope. And Oregon has a series of drop boxes where you drop the ballots in. So once you, uh, you know, put the post, you don't have to worry about going down into the post office with his drop boxes. You can vote at any time. And as I say, it's so exhilarating to be able to do something like that. Absolutely. Thank you, Stan. And coincidentally, we hear from another Oregonian. I tell you, you're trailblazers over there. Trailblazers. Carol Ashland says Oregon has vote by mail, and it has been here for quite a number of years. Blind people can call the election office and get an ID and then log on to a website and vote. This is largely due to the efforts of Jean-Marie Moore. Isn't it cool how one advocate can make such a positive difference? That's a lesson to us all. Thank you, Carol. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Here's an email about an interesting project, and it comes from Rhonda Starts, and she says, Hello, Mr. Mosen. I am involved in a group that is planning to stream a family-based series in the vein of The Archers and Emmerdale. I will be playing the matriarch of the most prominent family. We are planning to record using a Blue Yeti microphone. My friend has some concerns about possible noises resulting from reading Braille with an uppercase B. Obviously, my Braille page will never exactly align with print pages. I have a doddering old Braille note that only requires a press of my left thumb to advance the text. However... We are not sure about the number and placement of electric outlets where we plan to record. I could emboss everything in hard copy Braille, but Ryan has concerns that the Yeti will pick up page turns from the thicker paper. Sighted folks will have at least three pages spread out in front of them without the need to turn pages. My third choice is that I may have access to a Braille Edge 40. I am not used to using this device, but I can practice. I'll need to get used to advancing lines with my little finger, or whatever it takes. I may also be able to get my hands on a Focus 14 fourth generation, but I know absolutely nothing about how to use it. From your experience using a Blue Yeti and recording, what is your best advice shot to minimize noises made reading Braille? My guess is that the Braille Edge 40 will be the optimal device, so I'd better borrow it and begin practicing. For your information, we have sample script pages from the Archers. There are 25 lines per page, and all lines are numbered. Each line contains the character name, line number, and all stage directions and sound cues listed before the speaking parts. We are currently determining whether or not we will adhere to this overall design, or if this much direction may not be necessary, as we have no sound person. Each of us will be responsible for the daily living sounds our characters make. Some of this may present a larger challenge for me as a Braille reader, but I am confident we will resolve any issues that might arise before we are ready to record for real. Thanks for any advice you might offer. Well, I have all sorts of thoughts on this, Rhonda. This sounds like a really interesting project. The first thing I would say is that if you're going to be all gathering around the one microphone you are going to pick up quite a lot of room ambience, I suggest, 
because it's going to be difficult for, depending on how many of you there are, I mean, if it's a two-person scene, it might not be so bad, but if you have three or four people, it is going to be difficult for you all to get close enough to the mic for you to get really good sound. You'll all be just fractionally off mic, and depending on where you're recording it, you may pick up quite a lot of room bounce. The Blue Yeti is a condenser microphone, and it has various patterns, including a stereo one and one that picks up sound from both the front and the back, and another one that is extremely directional. So it'll be important to use the correct pattern for the Blue Yeti. So my first question really would be, how seriously are you taking this? It does sound like you're going to quite a bit of trouble, which makes me think you're really looking for a, a high-quality product. And if you are, what I would recommend that you do is buy a digital recorder of some kind. Now, they're not necessarily that expensive anymore. The Zoom recorders are very good. And there's a Zoom recorder I've been meaning to mention on this show. I haven't tried it yet, but it is designed specifically for podcasters. It's called the Zoom P4. And as the name implies, it's for podcasters. That's what the P stands for. You've got four inputs. And you can also do phone recording and things using Bluetooth or a cable, which is not really applicable in this situation, but it's a really interesting recorder. And what's also cool is that it's only $199. So if you got something like the Zoom P4 and you each had your own individual microphone, you can get a pack of Samson Q2U microphones, which I think would be ideal for what you're trying to do because they're highly directional mics, they're dynamic mics. You really have to be in front of them. And so three or four of you could have your respective microphone plugged into this recorder and a lot of background noise would be isolated. Everybody would be talking directly into a microphone. And I promise you, the recording quality that you will get in a setup like this will be so vastly superior to you all trying to cram around a single blue Yeti microphone. Whichever way you go, though, the trick will be not to have your braille display and the microphone you use on a table close to one another. The stand that comes with the Blue Yeti picks up all sorts of table vibrations. So you put that Yeti on the table and you just thump the table. See, I can't do it because the microphone that I have, which is the Heil PR40, uh, I've got in a shock mount, so I can't do it. But boy, you, you will get a very, very loud resonant thumping sound. If you use the stand and you have that Yeti on the table and your brow display on the same table... Every time you press one of the thumb keys or any key on the braille display, you are going to hear that in the recording, no question. But I think you could probably resolve that by keeping the braille display in your lap. If you can get yourself at an angle where you're comfortable reading with the braille display in your lap, not on the table, it should actually be okay. But I suspect, depending on how serious you are about the audio of what you're recording, that when you all start gathering around this one Yeti and try to record, you're going to find it doesn't really sound that good. It will be hard for everybody to be at the same level. And I guess one way around that would be to introduce some compression, but that's also going to boost any room ambience that you might be getting. So, you know, I'd seriously consider that option of getting a cheap recorder uh, like Zoom, which is a high-quality recorder for, for the price, and plugging in some low-cost but high-quality dynamic mics like the Samson Q2U or the one that Michael was talking about last week on the show, the Audio-Technica ATR2100X, 
which is also a very nice mic for the price. Good luck, and I'll be keen to hear how you go with this project. Greetings, Jonathan, says Marissa. Ah, greetings, Earthling. I wanted to make you and your listeners aware of an iOS application. The app is called Voice OCR. As to be expected, it is an optical character recognition app. The cost is $4.99. The application allows you to take pictures and have the contents read to you by using your voice. It does work 100% with voiceover. The program will tell you how many corners are visible. The developer is very responsive to voice OCR slash voiceover related issues. There will be more app updates to come. Thank you very much, Marissa. I do have that one as well. Isn't it great to see the number of OCR apps in the store that really are producing some good results? I remember when we started using iPhones, OCR apps were pretty few and far between and not particularly good. Now we're getting some stunning results on the iPhone with OCR apps. Great progress. Sean Thiel is in touch regarding the Dvorak keyboard. Sounds like some composer from way back. He says, I have answers for the person who had trouble with the Dvorak keyboard and voiceover and suspect at least one other person may also respond. The listener with the question indicated that the voiceover command did not respect the layout change under hardware keyboard in settings. Turning voiceover off and back on again immediately after making the change should fix this. As in, don't even back out a screen first. Dvorak is a completely different way to type on a standard keyboard, known as a logical layout. It is named, after its creator, August Dvorak. Letters are arranged more in accordance with how they are used in English, something which, despite some misconceptions, the standard QWERTY layout does not do. The biggest reason I found it useful was in reducing hand strain. The typing is distributed much more evenly between the hands. We generally don't think about how often the left hand is used in QWERTY, until one hand starts hurting considerably more than the other, which is where I found myself in 2016. With some workarounds, I have been using it on most systems I interact with since around August of that year. I first heard about it in passing from Larry ScootCon on Blind Cool Tech, and he explained a little more in an answer to a feedback question I sent in. If you're listening, Larry... Thank you so much for introducing me to something that would allow me to use the computer more comfortably and for longer periods at a time all these years later. It really has helped me in many ways. There you go. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. It is intriguing, and I do know people. I've worked with people in the software industry who swear by this layout for the very reasons that you outline. Greetings there, New Zealand. Anyways, uh, thank you, Mike and NBC. I was just wondering, Jonathan, uh, with all your nutrition information, did you ever come across celiac disease or and or gluten intolerance? My stepmom has celiac disease. That's a very, very severe, severe form of gluten intolerance. Uh, gluten is 
part of wheat, wheat and, and all that. And I found actually with my pituitary uh, dysfunction, I have a lot better results with going gluten-free gluten as much as I possibly can than anything. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't have gluten problems, but um, it, um, the glu- going gluten-free seems to work with my pituitary dysfunction much better. <laughs> And greetings to you, Angus. Good to hear from you. I don't think I have a gluten intolerance, but I sure have come across a lot of people who seem to. And I've read books about this and the impact that going gluten-free has had on a lot of people's lives. So it's certainly worth trying for people who believe that maybe some of the symptoms they're experiencing are associated with gluten and you can try just to, you know sometimes you have to try eliminating these things from your diet to see what the result is dairy is the same as i said in the piece that i did on going keto it's remarkable how many people are actually dairy intolerant and don't know that they are until they have a go at eliminating it from their diet you can go to a doctor and do all sorts of tests which can help identify any intolerances that you may be experiencing. So it's worth a go. But sure, yeah, it's a big deal, isn't it? And some people I've talked to who have gone gluten-free have had astounding results, really life-changing, transformative results. So if that's happened to you, let us know. Did going gluten-free change your life? And how did you identify that gluten was the culprit so you knew what to do? John writes, hello, Jonathan, hope you are well. On the subject of TuneIn Radio, I received the message that due to copyright issues, the recording function will be disabled from September 29th in Australia. I received this message on the 12th of September, and you brought it up on the show that week. I only use the recording function to record your radio show. I guess I would have to go back to playing the show on one device and recording it through the Voice Memos app on another device, if this is permanent. I need the whole three hours. I only have one thing to say about the music companies filing such lawsuits. The more they try to remove such music or shows from legal sources like TuneIn, the more people will turn to piracy due to a lack of options. Well, John, I don't know if you have access to a PC or Mac, but there are options for recording on those platforms. My preference on the PC is a thing called Tap-In Radio. I have to say, it can be a little bit idiosyncratic, that app, because rather than just being accessible and use standard controls, they try to talk to screen readers directly. And sometimes I find that gives unpredictable results. But Tap-In is great. You can just have it scheduled to record shows, and it goes ahead and does it. I've had really good experience with it. I know several people who record the full Mosin at Large using Tap-In Radio. Now, my Mac knowledge is a little bit old and rusty, but I think Audio Hijack will record streams, and there are probably many other options as well. John says, I am looking at getting an air fryer. Could you suggest some good brands? Well, we bought an air fryer about a year ago. Actually, it was over the summer. It was over last Christmas, and we really like our air fryer. We don't use the grill nearly as much as we used to now that we have the air fryer. 
We have a magazine here run by Consumer New Zealand, which is simply called Consumer, and they do reviews of products. And I'm a member of that because I enjoy geeking out about these things. And I looked up their article about air fryers, and they recommended a range of Philips air fryers. I don't remember the brand model, but I do know that we have a Philips one. And the next question, of course, when you're buying appliances like this is, is it going to be accessible for us to use? Some of them are pretty touchscreen based. Some of them wrap. So we found one that just has physical knobs. I think it actually does have a few things that you have to press. Maybe we can ask Bonnie about this, actually. I have to confess, she uses it far more than I use it. But we had steak with it last night. And it was tremendous. If anyone has any specific air fryer model recommendations, by all means, let us have them. Living the iOS 14 dream. It is Bonnie Mason. Hello. How are you going with the iOS 14 dream? Good. I'm still getting through the podcast. So, (laughs) yeah, it's quite a long podcast. I suppose I could just sit you down and tell you the things that are in the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. You can wind me back, can't you, with mm-hmm. the podcast? And I can, Listen yeah. to me again and mm-hmm. and speed me up. And speed you up, Or yes. slow me down. Exactly. Oh, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> what do you make of it so far, though? Seems pretty good. I mean, from what I've seen. Um, you added a widget? I did add a then widget. Then you took a widget then, away? I took it away. I, it was ta- I did the smart stack, and it was just taking up way too much space on the home screen. So It went bye-bye. Oh, dear. I'm waiting for a lot more news sites to come out with widgets. Yeah. And then I'm going to have a page of noose. Mm, it's going nice. to be excellent. There They'll all be out. copying from each other. Yeah, I, I think that the first news widget that I saw come through was actually from the CBC over oh, in Canada. Interesting, interesting, yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know if you heard, but we had an inquiry from John. John, John, about the air fryer. Yeah. Um, and I know we've got a Philips one. It's a Philips. I, I have no idea what brand, you know, what model. What model, I, I don't recall either like now. That, I have to go through my shopping folder. Yeah. I keep all my receipts. Actually, that's a good idea. I could do that. Because John's on Australia, so I'm sure that the model we have will be, will be available. Yeah, but they're very popular among blind people now. Um, very easy to use. Sometimes I can be a bugaboo to clean just because the nature of the beast. Mm. But, um, yeah, very happy with it. I need to really sit down and look at some recipes and do more with it. But we do steak. We've done chicken as always. You know, questionable. You really have to be so careful with chicken, and but we have cooked chicken in it. We've done vegetables. Um, yeah, I can't immediately find the air fryer in the shopping receipts, but anyway, it's uh, well. What can we say about it in terms of operating it and setting? It's very it? simple. Yeah, yeah, very simple. Just has a, a dial that you you know click the temperature with yes and i, I remember we uh, called I, I it was the middle of the night when i decided we should have this air yes. fryer. Mm-hmm. and i remember calling ira doot, 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 doot. and i said you know let's have a look at air fryers and so they identified this one as looking like it was quite accessible yeah, yeah so it's it's nice it's yeah. Nice. yeah it is good now now jason on the other hand he says i thought you and some listeners may find this of interest the people I know that have air fryers all say they like them, but always then go on to talk about all the things it doesn't do a good job with. Mm. What? 
And then he's pointing us to a New York Times review of a convection oven, mm-hmm. which apparently sort of does air fryer type things, but also does other things. What do you know about convection ovens? Mm, not a lot, actually. We like our air fryer. We never yeah, complain yeah. about it. I mean, our sure air fryer and us, we're BFFs, mate. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are things it doesn't do well. Well, I mean, it doesn't I mean, that's do why people or... sometimes have like a million gadgets in their kitchen, especially if they're a... You know, big chef type person. If you are in the United States, I don't know whether it's in any other markets yet, but they do have this soup drinker powered Amazon microwave slash convection oven thing. Mm-hmm. That is really cool, isn't it? Yeah. To be able to talk to your soup drinker and as long as you don't, cooked. as long as you don't do something sacrilegious like make soup with it. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't be able. Well, you'd be able to. Yeah, you probably could make soup mm-hmm. in a microwave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. And uh, what else is happening? We're going to Queenstown. That's probably the most exciting news. <laughs> yes, most important yes. news of the day. Finally, I um, I acquiesced to lots of people who said you really need to take a break, Jonathan. You really need to look after yourself, Jonathan. So we're going to spend a week at a resort. Yeah, it's going to be very Our nice. Third time there, I think. That'll be the fifth of October. So um, there might not be a podcast at the end of that week. I'm not sure how we all do that at this point, but. Yep. But yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. All that mountain air, yeah, spa treatments, yeah, just relaxing, and hopefully we can. Because um, the last times we've been there, we haven't been able to use the balcony off our room. No, because the, the other t- two cold. times that we've been, we've been in the middle of winter. <laughs> yes, and uh, in Queenstown, I mean, you get the snow. Yeah. It, it really is cold there. So hopefully we can sit outside and enjoy the the mountain air and. It'll replenishing. Be, yeah, it'll be during school holidays, so. Oh boy. It'll be all the Aucklanders down there. Screechy it's, children. And just before I go, thank you so much to those who have signed the Apple Watch beta petition, which asks Apple to ensure that in future public betas are not released that exclude blind people or for that matter any other disabled person from testing them. Currently, we're just under 2,200 signatures. I really appreciate that. And we're getting close to the point now where I'm going to close that petition. So if you would like to sign it before it closes, and thanks for the wonderful support, head on over to petition.mosin.org where you can add your name to the list of people who believe that when Apple says public, that doesn't mean public excluding blind people. Petition.mosin.org on that important point of principle. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.